Welcome all to another episode of Concessions. This week, we have brought Jackson Brown back onto the mic to discuss his selected film for a second conversation together, Strange Days. This one was particularly cool to dig into because when Jackson recommended this as the next film that he wanted to chat about, neither Jared or myself knew a thing about it, even though it was directed by Catherine Bigelow, who's hardly a fringe figure in the 90s. This opened up a fun conversation about the paradox of availability within our contemporary streaming era, where it seems like everything is at our fingertips right now. Along with that, this film is a genuine hidden gem of a dystopian neo-noir thriller with a whole lot on its mind about the present in which it was made in. If you've been enjoying what we do so far, please feel free to nod your head in approval while listening to this while on your own personal squid device. You can also find Jared on threads at Jared Concessions and myself at X at Dan Concedes. Let us know what you'd be streaming on your own personal squid device. As always, thank you so much for bending an ear our way. And without further ado, let's venture into the past's future of a rain-soaked Y2K Los Angeles with Catherine Bigelow's Strange Days. Happy Y2K, everyone, and welcome to su- Succession. Fuck. Fuck <laughs> I feel like I've done that before. I feel like I've done that exact thing recently. Back to one. Okay. All right, dude, just take the funny energy and just go. Yeah. Happy Happy Y2K, everyone, and welcome to Concessions. I'm Dan. And I'm Jared, and I'm such a tight ass that when I fart, only dogs can hear it. Oh, quite a whistle you got there. Um, is there... Yeah. I think there's another person in here that could hear that sweet, sweet whistle. It's a, it's a Mr. Jackson Brown is also in the house for the second time. Jackson, say hello to the dozens. I am more than happy to be back, but uh, unfortunately, my hearing is impaired, so I couldn't even hear it. Must be just you, Dan, not a dog. Yeah, it's oh, a, just the slightest whistle right now. Sometimes <laughs> it's a, usually it's like a strong trumpet. Every once in a while, it's like more of a trombone. But uh, yeah, it's just a, it's just a little squeaky, squeaky thing these days. <laughs> uh, well, we'll have to send you or send us your training resume later for how to get that uh, sweet, sweet whistle. <laughs> oh, we'll cover it in great detail this evening. <laughs> so, uh, Jared, you can kick us off. What do you? Uh, what could you possibly? be sipping on over oh, there take, take any guess guess buddy is that an ice cold low carb low calorie sugar-free white claw incorrect it's two of them <laughs> in the left hand we've got lemon in the right hand we've got passion fruit i'd never had the lemon flavor before and i gotta tell you i was a little bit worried that this thing was going to taste like some kind of cleaning product and I'm happy to say it does not. This tastes like a like a lemon drop, but with only a hundred calories and only two grams of carbs. Honestly, white claw. kind of fucked that you would doubt them for a second. Well, as soon as they sponsor this podcast, there will be no remaining doubts left. <laughs> <laughs> what, Next, what about you? What are you uh, yeah. sipping on over there? Well, in honor of our New Year's Eve themed uh, film here. I'm sipping on a little bit of champagne that Dan actually left on my on, in my fridge uh, yeah. after a wedding we were at this weekend, and he <laughs> traveled through, left me with the gift of. Uh, I wish I could tell you guys that it was Dom Perignon or at least Corbel, but no, I am sipping on Andre. So the cork didn't even pop properly, but um, <laughs> we're here. We're sold. But at least you didn't get 
injured by it. That's well, true. fun fact, when we were at this wedding, he had another bottle of champagne. He was trying to uh, uncork it, and he had it pointed right at my eyeball. And I'm like, Jackson, can you can you point that thing away? Get that pecker out of here. <laughs> mm, I was yeah. trying to injure your other eye. I was like, yeah, I've already got one good eye left. Like, let's uh, let's keep it at one. Yeah, finger uh, off of the trigger when you're waving that thing around. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but for me, also sticking with kind of the holiday theme that uh, my girlfriend's parents got us some beer for Christmas, and it's a, a Breckenridge Christmas ale. And it's a multi full body winter warmer, and it's pretty good. It's like a spiced brown ale. Once again, visual podcast and uh, visual medium of podcasting. It's like you know dark brown. Very it's nice and looks nice and nutty. Does it taste nice and nutty? Oh, it's nutty. It's nothing. Excellent. Um, speaking of nut, anything? Get you guys excited that you checked out the last uh, week or so? Fuck yeah. <laughs> what do you got? Well, okay, two things. The, fir- the first thing, uh, I've got a buddy who's writing some slightly dystopian, some kind of speculative fiction uh, starring uh, some future firefighters. Oh. And so in order to do my, do my best to kind of get into a similar headspace and support that endeavor the best I can. I reread Fahrenheit 451 for the first time in my adult life. Mm. Oh yeah. It's a very good book if you hadn't heard. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but the thing that I'm actually really excited about is I finally got around to watching the entire first season of the bear on FX. Oh, oh yeah. Holy fucking shit. <laughs> like that, that I, I don't even know what to say. It's just like, it's it's perfect and they're you know one episode in particular in the first season is like the obvious standout and anyone who's seen the first season of the bear will probably be able to guess which one but it's episode seven review which is by and large just like a 20 minute uh extended take just a big big old chaotic oneer. Oh, uh, cool. the show is like a combination of Ted Lasso and chef and uncut gems in like equal measure <laughs> good god and uh, no, it's fucking fantastic. Uh, also, like, again, not a visual medium here, but I got a good look at Jackson when he first joined the uh, the uh, meet. Jackson, did anyone ever tell you, you and Jeremy Allen White kind of kind of got a similar uh, look to you? That. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I also love the bear. And I, I did hear that back in the day. What back in my restaurant days when I was serving and bartending, I used to get shameless um Yep. Lip from Shameless, which was kind of his breakout role. Oh, that's because I always thought of like you know, like Indiana Jones, Star Wars, Young Harrison Ford, <laughs> Young Harrison Ford. Thing. Yeah. yeah, I yeah. would always correct people and tell them that. But yeah, the bears, the bears, is a stunning piece of work, and I think that you know what people always tell me that Cassavetes is, which I'm not the world's biggest Cassavetes fan, is how I feel the bear, the bear actually is that sense of realism. That sense of sort of sort of breakneck pacing that you're talking about, Jared, where a 20 minutes one take in a restaurant kitchen feels like a battlefield scene, which is what it feels like when you got 30 tickets coming at you and three people <laughs> screaming at you to go grab them ranch or refill their drink. Yeah. So get them a fucking Sharpie. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff, Dan. I assume you haven't seen it because you're not a big TV guy. I've so my girlfriend was watching it. I'd see it in bits and pieces, and I, I would always sit down to watch more of it because it's you know set in chicago and it's just absolute yeah. like chicago eye candy and you know it was interesting to me the bits i saw but because i wasn't invested enough i yeah. remember the episode i i mo- watched end to end it was like the uh 
the the black dude is a pastry chef. They send him to yeah. like Amsterdam or something. And yeah. that episode was really cool. Yeah, having that's the second season. Haven't gotten there yet, but apparently that's a that's just everyone says that's like a really stunning one. But you got to watch it, Dan. It's like so low commitment. The first season's eight episodes, are like thirty minutes each. Other than the one that's twenty minutes and one that's like forty minutes. So still average thirty minutes each, eight episodes. Nothing, dude. You could crush it in an afternoon. Yeah, hate yeah. commitment. So that yeah. that sounds great. What about you, Dan? What was like the? I know, I know oh, you guys had a oh. had a very busy week, but like when you weren't, you know, just kind of drinking yourself into oblivion to celebrate, you know, <laughs> your uh, your friend getting locked down for life. Uh, what what else were you doing? Um, so yesterday was finally the first day that I watched any movies this year. Kicked it off with probably already. I'm like a little disappointed. I'm like, I think I've seen the best thing I'm going to see all year already on the third, and that was uh, Ken Russell's The Devils. My God, that's good shit. Um, I went into it thinking like, oh, you know, this is like freak shit. They're just going to throw everything at the wall. It's going to be wild. And it was. But then by the end, it's like, oh, this is like actually a thoughtful meditation on like religion, power and sex and desire and all that stuff at the same time, as well as also people fighting with crocodiles. Yeah, the crocodile Uh, doesn't get enough credit as a cinema (laughs) icon. (laughs) It was so good. Like I was I was. Like I said, kind of like uh, when I talked about Salo like a month or two ago, where it's like I went in expecting like, oh, this is going to be fucked up and like, oh, it's so extreme. And then you come out of it as like, oh, no, like there's a reason why all that's in there. And they, they're like really trying to indict you and get you in this, too. And that that's how they like kind of shock you into thought. Yeah. Awesome. I uh, saw that movie back in 2015 or early 2016 at SIF when Robert Eggers was there. Uh, you know, showing everyone the witch for one of the first times, and he curated a couple movies. Uh, in actually true concessions fashion, he brought two additional movies that he would pair with oh. the witch, and one of them was The Devils, and the other one was Rosemary's Baby. Huh, that's an interesting combo that he thinks that those two are together with it. That's interesting. Um, yeah. oh, also, which we'll get into this later, famously hard to find The Devils until recently. Yeah, was it was it on like Shutter or something now? Uh, Criterion, and it like just came out on Criterion. Uh, yeah. Jackson, what about you? Yeah, Devil's also also great. Watched that a few years ago, um, but yeah, it was hard to find for a long time. But excellent religious war, as Dan said. Um, you know, I'm gonna take it to the literary world. So just kicked off um, the final book, and Ooh. I'm I'm probably gonna butcher his name, but Shixin Lu, a Chinese science fiction writer. Um, the trilogy is called The Remembrance of Earth's Past, and I'm reading the final book right now called Death's End. So just started that. Um, Weird. Yeah, so man. am I. That's what a coincidence. What an odd coincidence. So and funny. yeah, in terms of, of world building and the ability to play out the long form consequences of extraterrestrial life physics development, things like that. I'm not a science guy, but he's got me out here, out here Googling theorems that I probably should have learned in ninth grade. So <laughs> I'm doing that one a lot so far and looking forward to, to getting further into it. Uh, yeah, that, uh, I kicked off that trilogy like in April and you like, it's one of those where you look at the cover, it looks like one of those hokey, like, you know, schlocky, pulpy sci-fi ones. And I think I grabbed it literally. It's like, I'm taking a long flight home. Maybe I'll just like munch on this. And it's quickly become one of my favorite things I've read in a while. 
Oh, that's awesome. Uh, two things. I think the, fir- the first one, if memory serves me correctly, you were right in the middle of the three-body problem the first time you were on the pod, Jackson. And that's also the thing that you talked about at the beginning of the episode. Pretty oh, sure. How oh, really uh, was it? I think so. And uh, two, how would you rate your level of uh, interest or excitement on the uh, you know, the Benioff and, mm. and Weiss Netflix adaptation? Uh, you know... On one hand, I think it, it does have a very cinematic feel to the story. Um, the sweep is gigantic. And despite all of our problems, or assume, I'm assuming y'all have problems with the way Game of Thrones ended, we can't, we can't <laughs> denigrate the fact that they had six incredible seasons that basically put fantasy TV on the map and legitimized fantasy in a big screen way, in a way that we hadn't seen since Lord of the Rings. So on one hand, I really want to trust them. On the other hand, I've seen a trailer and it's pretty garbagey CGI, and I'm a little worried we're going to be getting the uh, the Zack Snyder treatment. So some of the, the spectacle and sweep gets lost within this the uh, the green screen nature of the filmmaking. But um, cautiously optimistic. Yeah, that's kind of where I land too, because like you said, like things are off the rails when they no longer had source material, and they're going to have source material all the way through on this one. Yeah, yeah, I I trust the books to land the plane. And um, I do think a lot of people watch it regardless of, of the quality. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we are yeah, not here to do a prediction on whether or not they fuck this one up, too. We're here to talk about, well, Jackson has subjected us to this one, a, a movie that neither one of us had heard about until he uh, threw it on the map for us. Uh, 1995's Strange Days by Catherine Bigelow. Uh, written by her, I don't think, husband at the time. No, they might have been. The- well, yes and no. He started writing it in like 1986. Mm. He wrote a big ass treatment for it later. She directed it later. They collaborated on it for years. And somewhere in the middle of that, they were married and divorced. (laughs) So partner uh, in the broadest sense of the word, uh, James Cameron uh, also, or with, uh, he produced it. And also as James Cameron and Jay Cox were the writers on it. And Cox is interesting because he also has writing credits for gangs in New York, silence, age of innocence, like some pretty excellently written, uh, you know, Scorsese film. So it's cool to see that he's, or that touches in there, especially age of innocence. Cause that's what he would have been right off of, uh, yeah. writing strange days too, uh, starring a very young Ralph Fiennes, uh, Angela Bassett. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're, you're not going to fucking destroy Rafe Fine's name like that. Did you say Ralph Fiennes? I am, and I'm going to have fun with it. No, no. His name is Rafe Fines. <laughs> Ralph Fine. Vienna, well-known lounge singer. <laughs> I, I got to say, that's the most famous person I've ever heard anyone mispronounce. But like, he's a, also, it's a fucking weird spelling of a name, right? Ralph Fiennes. Yeah, Rafe Hines. Uh, it's probably some French-ass shit, you know. Angela Bassett. <laughs> I think Julia it's Welsh. Lewis, well, oh, it's, his last name's Welsh? Fiennes? I think that, that pronunciation of Ralph is Welsh. Oh, oh gotcha. But anyways, uh, Ray Fiennes, Angela Bassett, Juliette Lewis, Thomas Sizemore, and Michael Wincott, I would say, are the main stars in this one. There's a few other uh, people that have fairly significant uh speaking roles but i'd say that's the core of the cast um so yeah jackson you can kick us off what's your previous history with this movie what was like going into this like experience with Catherine bigelow in general and why'd you choose it yeah for sure um i guess we can start with the bigelow piece of it so 
She probably first came across my radar as a, a budding film nerd in the early 2000 or late 2000s when Hurt Locker was was really gearing up for the Academy Awards, ironically defeating her ex's greatest triumph, arguably greatest triumph with Avatar. Certainly not his greatest artistic triumph, but at the time his greatest commercial triumph um, to win Best Picture. So I saw that movie. I uh, really liked it. I was one of the, I understand that it came under somewhat early film Twitter controversy, Zero Dark Thirty, even getting senators involved. But I thought that was also a really interesting movie in terms of being a pretty honest depiction of the U.S. war on terror and taking a a pretty fascinating look at um, how we how we did what we did <laughs> and the and whether or not the means justified the ends and a really terrific Jessica Chastain performance in, the, in there. So I came across Strange Days, um, ironically enough, on another podcast, which will not be named, no free ads. And they were talking about Strange Days as an underseen film that was very difficult to find. At the time, this was probably about three years ago. The only way you could watch Strange Days was if you had a film print, which Lord knows those are extremely hard to find, or a German language or European coded Blu-ray or DVD. So... That has now changed. It's available for all to stream on HBO Max. So when you guys invited me back and I was thinking about movies that I would like to do, a lot of the ones that were top of mind were the ones that have been uh, film bro to death, like There Will Be Blood or Blue Velvet or things like that, which no shots of those movies. I love those movies. I mean, I'm a guy with clear glasses who wants to write screenplays. So obviously I love those movies. <laughs> but <laughs> the... Um, Strange Days, I found its sort of amalgamation of dystopian noir, which is something I also really like, as well as its, frankly, just bravura filmmaking. Pretty fascinating. I thought it would be a fun one to kick around with you guys because maybe it's uh, a little bit underseen and there's something that we could dive into that had not been explored to death. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's funny, no free ads, as we just spent 45 seconds talking about the glory of uh, White Claw. No free ads <laughs> for anything but White Claw. Though. Or or the bear. <laughs> or the devils, or, uh, but what yeah, about, Jared, what about you walking into this one? Yeah, uh, sa same exact Catherine Bigelow origin story for me is the Hurt Locker. <laughs> but then uh, I, I think I'd actually previous to that, like as a kid, I'd seen Point Break, and then as like a younger teenager, I'd seen Near Dark when I was kind of just oh, checking off, that. checking off every like you know, noteworthy horror or horror comedy or horror thriller or whatever, you know, at the time. But then uh, the first time I put a name to the work was definitely The Hurt Locker. And I think my favorite Catherine Bigelow movie is Detroit. Hmm. Um, that, that was like, you know, more more recent, maybe a little bit more kind of grounded, but but still very potent movie. And I think thematically, probably the closest in line with Strange Days, I would say. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, obviously she's a powerhouse filmmaker and, um, you know, she's, she's not like my very favorite. Like, I, I don't think any of her movies, I've seen them and they've just like rocketed to the top of my list. I'm trying to remember like what movie I was rooting for at those 2009 Academy Awards, but it wasn't The Hurt Locker or Avatar. But yeah, no, I like huge, huge amount of respect. And I've, I've never seen one of her movies and been like, that was bad or like that was boring or like that you know, didn't completely didn't jive with me. She's, I, she's not like the upper pantheon for me, but yeah, I'd never heard of this movie before. Largely, I assume for the reasons that Jackson already mentioned. 
And uh, I'm super glad that that Jackson picked it because this movie kind of slaps. Dan, yeah. how about you? Yeah, I mean, mine's actually quite similar. We're actually, I have not seen. I have vague memories of the Hurt Locker. I think I like seen it, saw it in a dorm, like in passing. So I don't remember too too much about it. And it just kind of melded. It was like, oh, it's like a you know, I uh, war in the Middle East movie. I wasn't really tuned in to really get the the nuances of it. I uh, haven't seen Zero Dark Thirty, but the first one where I knew this is a Catherine Bigelow movie that I watched, it's the first movie I watched when I got to San Diego, where it's like, I'm going to watch a California as fuck movie, so we're watching Point Break, and yeah. I knew I was, she sold me forever with that, just that fucking line of, well, here comes a guy, he looks young, dumb, and full of cum, I'm like, <laughs> how, you put that in a movie, you can put that in movies and say that to human beings, I was like, I'm Anything she's in, I'm in. And then, uh, yeah, I watched Near Dark. I think it was on Mubi, and I checked that out. And that movie also rules. That bar fight scene is so mm-hmm. much fun. Where that's like that's what she, a she's you know, it's an extra excellent filmmaker, excellent storyteller. But like her set pieces, especially her action set pieces, are awesome. And uh, yeah, Strange Days also has no shortage of that. But same as you, when when we told Jackson's like, hey, like. You want to do another episode, pick whatever you want. He's like, oh, Strange Days. I, I had to Google it. I had no idea what that movie was. And uh, Jackson, when you suggested it, was it on Max yet? Or was like, were we going to have to do a little bit of a nautical searching for it? Well, I actually saw it for the first time when um, the Belcourt, which is the local art house film theater here in Nashville, programmed a 35 millimeter print of it. Great theater. Great theater. We will give them free ads if you're ever in Nashville, <laughs> check it out. But um, the Belcourt showed a 35 millimeter print as part of a, a science on film series. I think it was paired with After Yang. Uh, oh, that's not cool. as a, Yeah, not as a double feature, but as a um, part of that science fiction on film series. So I think it hit max and I was like, okay, I'm not going to make these guys illegally torrent or figure out how to get a German German language Blu-ray player. <laughs> <laughs> so... Then I was like, okay, this is actually a viable option. Yeah, awesome. and it was yeah, great pick where, like I said, like, you know, at this point, the three of us spend way too much time in the movie space. So like there's not too, too many big budget Hollywood films that you just ha- just had no idea what they were. Like usually vaguely aware of most of them. You're just like, eh, you know, I kind of know what it's about and know its thing and I'll get around to it eventually. But this one I'm like, no idea. And so like looking into production where this is by all accounts a major Hollywood production i was like how have i never heard of this one and i will get in that to in a little bit but yeah that was a a very firm pick right here um but yeah i think it's interesting to look at this movie in the lens of bigelow in her career at this point where this is her follow-up from point break and i mean you guys tell me that point break definitely felt like her breakout like she was certainly a name in hollywood she was getting to make movies but point break is when like Catherine bigelow made something yeah. that made a lot of money and it's going to start getting a little more carte blanche to to take some even bolder choices than the things that she was already doing. And even still, when you read the the contemporary reviews of not only like her stuff before, but even this one, it, it was you, you still still, yeah, still see people struggling with the fact that like, oh, a girl can make action movies. This is this is like movies for boys. How can a girl make that one? And uh I I, I just feel like the the gender is so relevant especially in this film because you know it's all about like 
voyeurism. It's all about the way that we're looking at bodies, especially women's bodies, about uh, the way that like violence is depicted and things like that. Where like she definitely does not pull a single punch uh, when it comes to any of the intensity of violence. But like this one, for all intents and purposes, bombed at the theater. Reviews were mixed at best. Uh, and she really doesn't come back until the Hurt Locker. So, um, which is like, I, th- I think it's like 12 years later. Um, she made a couple movies in between the two, but that was like her first, that was like her career recovery film, just considering it was like a big hit and it's such a, a like an artistic success, like an awards. Like she made a couple movies in between, like K19, The Widowmaker, starring Harrison Ford, like a few years later, but even that also bombed. Yeah, yeah. Like it, it seemed like she doesn't land back on her feet for another 12 years like it's weird that she goes into like neverland for a while yeah yeah i mean without getting too much into the thematic points of the film which i think we'll cover later i think given the political climate in the late 90s and especially in the la area with the rodney king riots we're not far from tupac being assassinated i think maybe it was it was a little much for it to be successful financially and also Frankly, this movie is pretty gnarly. There are some scenes in here that are very discomforting that I can't imagine you would watch this movie and be like, Mom, you know what you got to check out this weekend is Strange Days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. Right. Like, before I, I started doing more research and learning more about it, usually I like to just, I just draw on the film, have no context for it, and just try and take it in that way. Like, I, I got the feeling because of the, the sheer intensity and like the radicality of the film that like this couldn't have been a big Hollywood production where I, I figured it was like a little bit more on the indie side, maybe more of like a Miramax or, uh, production or something like that. But then when I started looking up, this is like dead center Hollywood, big bu- budget filmmaking. I was like, wow, this is really bold for uh, that style of filmmaking. And I think your point, like your points do make a little sense. Like this movie has zero escapism in it at all. It, it's making you stare down the barrel of two, uh, her vision of the year 2000 and how it's reflected today. Yeah, absolutely. And and even on top of that, like even just from a, like the, the business side of the coin, like I think the, the thematic elements certainly play a role, but I mean, I think of Rafe Fiennes is not, not unknown, by any stretch of the imagination at this point in his career. He'd already been nominated for an Oscar in like one of the biggest movies of the you know first half of the decade. But people kind of associated him with a, a Nazi shooting, you know, ha- you know, <laughs> dozens of people in the head throughout a three-hour black and white movie at this point, right? Like Angela Bassett definitely, I think, also had an Academy Award nomination, like maybe just a year or two before this as well, maybe even the same year as, as Ray Fiennes and Schindler's List. But but also not a not a big name. Also like a woman of color protagonist in a in a big budget science fiction Hollywood blockbuster movie. Kind of fucking radical at the time. Maybe probably even to this day still kind of radical. That might play a, play a part too. Um, but yeah, I'm a little a little surprised even even so. Just given like the stature of of Bigelow and Cameron already at the time. Uh, kind of, kind of surprising. Kind of surprising that we, you know, t- it took this long for it to be av- again available to the masses. You know, yeah, yeah, and sure. um, yeah, that kind of bleeds into the next point of, you know, in this age of, there's like 20 different streaming apps, and they all have hundreds of movies on it. It seems like we have more and more access to films as we've ever had, which is true in many ways. Um, where st- even stuff like the Criterion Channel has made it so there's films I 
would have never even heard about. I'm now getting to watch like the devils. Um, yeah. I'm now getting access to which, you know, a kid in the nineties, it's just no shot, but there's still is this kind of phenomenon of what I'm coining as semi lost films where it's not that they're banned. It's not that like they're, they're being hidden from us where I almost thought that for a second until I started looking a little more into the history of this film. That's like, Oh, maybe this movie like was getting hushed up. It's a little too radical. Um, Mm-mm. like something like, you know, Another one that's impossible finds like Salo or something like I thought it was maybe going into that bucket. But uh, this this movie has a little bit of a different story. But I was reading this article and it was like from 2011, interestingly enough. So, you know, streaming was existing, but it wasn't nearly the giant that it is now um, about the idea of uh, the convenience trap where, yeah, you can uh, there, there are art house films and older films on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon. Sure. But they're never going to be on the front page. Like when you pull up the homepage, they're going to show the things that are most likely to get the most people to click on it. So there's this con- like there's this sort of feedback loop of convenience versus the things thrown in front of you that you're going to watch more and more. The things that are more in the backlog are going to c- fall. Not not because they're not significant, not because they're not good, but it's just you have to dig a little bit more and people are just less likely to want to dig to find these things. And it starts to have this feedback loop where like there's some movies that while they are accessible, technically like they're effectively like non-existent. And I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on that one. Yeah. I mean, do do you mean like why you're asking why that happens or like, do you think that's a phenomenon? Um, how do you like do you notice that in your own movie watching habits yeah i mean i was for the longest time i was just like sailing the high seas that i never noticed it but that was also <laughs> that was also before streaming was so ubiquitous right mm-hmm. like well it was it wasn't i was i was never you know sailing the high seas out of you know trying to avoid the financial burden of watching movies it was more of what you described like literally that, that, that was the only way they were available for me to watch mm-hmm. so i I don't know. I think I think we're probably seeing less and less and less and less of that as time goes on. I don't I don't think it's uh, like I think I disagree with the premise that if uh, like of the convenience trap that you called it, like mm. I don't I don't think I agree with the premise that, you know, if it's not just there easily spoon fed to you, that it's difficult to find. I think if anything, a lot more movies are more accessible these days because you have things like just going on you know, YouTube or Amazon prime or whatever, and paying three bucks to rent the thing. It's like pretty rare to, to find a movie. You can't do that with, or like the criterion channel for more niche things or like buying the criterion DVD or like whatever it is. I, I do feel like that, that problem has smoothed out if anything. Yeah. I, th- I think there's a little bit of a dichotomy, right? So for you, for your more casual movie viewer, I think the convenience trap is a real thing. What's on the front page of Hulu. What's on the front page of Netflix. I think you're likely to click on it and then algorithmically you're going to be fed stuff that's more similar to that. So going to keep recommending that kind of yeah. stuff. Right. Yeah. So if you watch the gray man, which, you know, big Netflix movie, big production, kind of a pretty, pretty poor action film, you're probably going to be recommended more mid action films. And then you see the phenomenon of those films popping up on, in the top 10 of Netflix. But for someone who is invested in movies and spends like 27 minutes, picking out one movie to watch, <laughs> yeah. which is definitely not me after strolling through six to eight different streaming services, you almost go the other way where yeah. you have like a parallelization of choice where it's like, all right, so people are telling me about this movie. It's a pretty fun three and a half star science fiction movie on Hulu that just came out. Do I want to watch that movie so I can be up on the discourse quote unquote, 
or do I want to trawl through the depths of Criterion or go look at HBO's TCM tab so that I can find some lost classic and lord it over people who could not give less of a shit that I pay for Letterboxd? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it's we've never had more choices, and you can kind of go whichever way you want. Yeah, because I think of it similar to this phenomenon, even stronger Spotify, where like just about every piece of music ever made is in one uh, place, right? And so it keeps rewarding things that people are clicking on that want to listen to. So and then that has this feedback loop that like kind of like what Jackson was saying, like, you, you know how you hear this all the time where some boring made for Netflix, made for Hulu movie, everyone's like, oh, it looks like AI wrote this or it looks like an algorithm wrote this where it's coming to prove. I think Jackson shared it with me that Netflix released their streaming data or their viewing data. And they, they all but say their model now is like, we just want shit that someone's going to put on, be put on the background, be unoffended by, can kind of tune in and out of, and that's going to get eyes on eyes on the app, which is all that, which is their business model, of course. So there's sort of a, a sort of a convenience feedback loop there too, where not only is it, okay, uh, the thing that's on the front page is going to be what I'm more likely to click on uh, just because it's there, but now it's going to be the things I click on are the things that are more likely just going to like, just keep me interested enough. Just keep, just make sure it stays on. So it affects the way that films are made too. So I think we're entering this new phase of how uh, overabundance can sort of be a trap where now it's like films are now being made in mind of like, oh, we want to make this. We want Netflix to pick this up so it can be on the front page. Everyone will watch it uh, for one week and then forget about it. But we'll get a lot of eyes. Yeah, no, I, I can I definitely see that as an issue just like on the creative side. Uh, Dan, what's a, what's a movie like right now? that if you wanted to recommend it, it would be difficult because it would be difficult or impossible for like the average Joe to, to find on streaming. So one was actually uh, <laughs> where at the Seattle Film Festival. Um, I watched the film. It was actually just, I think it was the only one that we both didn't watch together, Jared. And it wound up being one of my very favorites. It's called A House in Jerusalem. And it's a 2022 film uh, that's basically like, pan's labyrinth but it's dealing with and this is pre-october 7th and everything that's going on there but it, it's dealing with the uh israeli-palestinian conflict and it's doing it in a very similar way that guillermo del toro handled uh fascist uh spain with pan's labyrinth and like it was about the best film i'd seen that year it was like i really enjoyed it and now it's been pff, the movie's been out for almost a year and a half now and you, it just doesn't exist. You can't find it anywhere. It's, it's like, you can look it up online. Like, of course you can read about it, but for all intents and purposes, this film just does not exist. The other one that it's an older one and it's sort of one of these famous missing films and it's for different reasons. Uh, the Mother and the Whore, which is, uh, what's his name? Uh, yeah, just, um, Eustish, Eustish, yeah. Where I guess this one is more that uh, his his family and his estate, they're really, really persnickety about how it's going to get released. So it's just like really hard to get those rights and people have been trying pretty much since streaming has existed. Um, so that one, I might've uh, gone a little nautical to, to find that one, but it's, it's also like, it's a pretty foundational piece of French cinema that like, it's one of those when you watch, it's like, oh, a lot of films now make a lot more sense to me because those filmmakers probably saw this and wanted to gra like grab some of that thunder. Interesting. Yeah. What about that you guys? Well, what one that really blows my mind is a movie that might be a, maybe a, a 
closer comparison to Strange Days because it's a movie like a major motion picture by a major director full of major stars. Very popular movie. I think, yeah, com- you know, commercially successful enough to spawn at least one sequel, maybe another coming up, you know, fairly soon. And it's just, you know, a major, major, like, touchstone of a whole, like, horror genre. It's 28 Days Later. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just, you, you can't, le- you can't, like, legitimately view that movie, like, uh, unless you own it on some kind of physical media right now. Um, there, there's, it's not streaming anywhere. It's unavailable to rent or buy on Amazon or YouTube or Apple or what have you. And, uh, I, I could probably just Google why that is, but I don't know. I'm kind of enjoying the mystique around why 28 yeah. days later is, you know, is a semi lost film right now. And it's, it's kind of one that blows my mind. Cause it's kind of like a seminal work by a huge, huge name uh, of a director. And yeah, no idea why, but it's just unavailable. It's out of print. Doesn't stream anywhere. Can't can't buy it or rent it digitally. Yeah, I've been trying to see it for a while now, and I just every once in a while I check in, see if it's streaming anywhere, see if it's not. I'm like, well, oh, all right, well, I'll check again later. Have you seen it before? No, never seen it. Oh fuck! I know because I can't find it. <laughs> we need to add that to the to the pod list. That's a that's a huge gap, dude. Yeah. I, well, yeah. I mean, how am I going? There's no other way I could possibly find outside of streaming. Uh, yeah. Well, and I wouldn't want to like release an episode for a, a you know a lost or semi lost film anyway right because then it's you know, like we saw it everyone go commit a crime and see it too right yeah exactly uh what about you jackson you got one that comes to mind a movie that's you know not not super super easy to to find and view right now yeah i didn't even know 28 days later wasn't available but yeah that's a banger the the one that came to mind was a matter of life and death which was actually Ooh. my favorite first time watching 2023 which is yeah. a powell and pressburger movie um the kind of seminal English directors known for their for their Technicolor Fantasias, and this one is about um, a British airman who gets shot down in World War II. And as he got gets shot down, he uh, falls in love, and then he has to go plead his case in front of um, the court of the Almighty. It sounds very highfalutin, but it's actually very warm, very lovely, gorgeously shot, and quite funny. Um, and to watch that one, a lot of Powell and Pressburger's other movies are available on Criterion Channel or on like Turner Classic Movies or something like that. But this one, I had to actually get the DVD from the library, like a real Luddite. So, <laughs> Damn, uh, Boomer. Yeah, but very well worth it. Put that shit on hold, y'all. Yeah, it's a, I, I second that where when I was going through my sight and sound, that was actually another example of like go, having to do the sight, having to do as if, it, <laughs> if I was forced. Uh, what I chose to do, run through the sight and sound top 100, there were, I mean, my guess would be about 20 of them you could not find streaming available. And like these are supposed to be 20 of like the quote unquote canon. Uh, so yeah. I, I I found that a little frustrating that some of the, what a, a lot of people get together and say is like some of the most important films in history, you just can't get your hands on. Yeah. Mother and the horror was, is also on that list. In terms yeah, of yeah, yeah. Uh, and I wouldn't have even heard about it if it wasn't for the sight and sound list. Cause it, it like for all intents and purposes, it doesn't really exist. Yeah. Uh, but moving back to this current, well, it's no longer lost, which hopefully, you know, now that it's on max, more people will be seeing it. There'll be more people talking about it. It'll get to be raised to the level of like, what should be a classic nineties, uh, sci-fi, uh, action movie. Yeah. Getting into strange days itself. Like I really think like just starting off on the technique side, I think what really makes this film so strong is like 
how tactile everything is. Yeah, like, I don't know if there's a single scene that has a green screen. Uh, if there's CGI, it's minimal at best. Um, everything is done with practical effects. I, I, I saw some stuff on like how they did the the POV shots, which like at the time they couldn't, you know, they didn't have uh, fucking GoPros to stick on your head. So they had to get like four or five guys like stacked together with a camera moving around in like a car or something to fit a POV shot in the back of a car. Like some of the innovations there uh, were incredible. I think I read somewhere that Bigelow had to invent a camera for some of the POV shots too. So the technical prowess on this is excellent. Um, I mean, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, no, no, it's like really fun though, is when you said that everything is tactile, the first thing that came to mind, it was like the texture on Rafe Fine's shirt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like just like absolutely stands out in my mind. Like he's got to be the like saddest, coolest boy and like <laughs> incredibly sad for someone who like maybe has the most impeccable fit in like all of like nineties cinema. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I know it's amazing. Like I don't, I don't think, you know, James Cameron's ever put his name on a movie that didn't have some kind of pretty major technical innovation on the filmmaking side. Um, and totally agree. Like it's, it's not the kind of movie that you'd see these days because it, a lot of it would just be green screen and, you know, probably wouldn't get, you know, this, this movie in, in 2024 dollars would probably cost, you know, 150 mil or something like that. Mm. And you just wouldn't have any of the major studios or like financiers forking that out for a movie this weighty and like mm. this ambitious and, and so made by hand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from a technical standpoint, it's pretty amazing. And as the story kind of traces our near future and a sort of nighttime odyssey through LA over two days, uh, very noir inflected, it, it does a lot of really interesting things, I think, both so that POV shot you're talking about, they had to invent cameras for that. There's a subway shot where they had to invent the cameras for that. Mm, mm -hmm. the, um, the final scene shot over New Year's Eve, they had 750,000 extras <laughs> there for that scene and rented out over half of an 83 story hotel and they shot it over several days and and i believe quit filming when like 10 extras passed out from ecstasy overdoses what so, yeah <laughs> wow was, they just felt they just shot a real ass rave <laughs> they 100 they just put the camera on angela bassett and ray fines and vincent donfrio and just had them run through <laughs> an actual rave. rave that's yeah, amazing so, but i also think it's even in some of the smaller scenes so i was noticing towards the i don't know if we want to spoil now or, or do a plot oh, spoil away yeah this is full spoiler. Yeah. okay so full spoilers we're getting towards the final reveal and they're shooting tom sizemore character max basically doing the classic noir move of discussing his final plan and outlining it all for the poor sucker who fell for it instead of just shooting him in like a one shot or staying tight on his face the whole time they shoot him or Bigelow chooses to shoot him either reflected in the mirror or from yeah. Ray point, or they do a flashback, but they move the camera from where the camera was in the first scene. And that sort of attention to detail is, is pretty amazing as you guys talked about in modern film. We don't see that a lot because, you know, keeping the audience interested by the camera moving constantly. And yeah, the tactile nature of it, you can tell that, every set is built even with the futuristic tech the the squid 
system or the or to be wired or jacked in or whatever you want to call it yeah it feels very tactile rather than just like a black sphere which i guess black sphere is what we're doing with these days but (laughs) (laughs) i also just appreciate the ambition of well it's thematically resonant as well but just the like the technical ambition of having so many mirror shots in this movie Mm -hmm. like you know just you know for obvious reasons without a lot of you know cgi being being used difficult to pull off and when i was watching it like i started counting them and by the time there was like the fourth or fifth one i was like man it feels a little bit self-congratulatory but then (laughs) by the by the end like it really started getting dialed in that you know it's obviously thematically resonant and fuck it man like if you got it flaunt it as far (laughs) as like the like the technical prowess and um yeah pretty badass and that's the one that i think stands out the most to me of where you know they could have taken an easier route and it would have been less interesting to look at less interesting to think about but yeah i think like all the way back to the first um the first pov scene where we're seeing um the relationship between lenny and faith and you know they're in the mirror for like a very long time mm-hmm. and um pretty pretty amazing stuff also yeah. in that scene i've got i got a very i got a very silly sidebar but i thought it was kind of <laughs> hilarious that like he like had to touch her boobs like with it like a towel over his hands <laughs> and i'm like it's wondering who was it that decided that was that a creative decision was that ray fines being like no i couldn't possibly or is that like <laughs> Juliet lewis being like oh no this schindler's list guy is fucking creepy i don't want him to touch my boobs <laughs> well anyway, okay. well it's a good thing that he's really shaked being the creepy guy by being voldemort for about a decade <laughs> you mean he must not be named show some respect <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, yeah. I'll use the V word on this podcast. <laughs> I'm not scared. I won't let the woke mob stop me. You'll be struck down where you sit. But <laughs> well, apparently Juliet Lewis was dating Brad Pitt at the time, so maybe he had something to say about that. <laughs> well, and that's what I really like too about choosing Ray Fines here instead of like this is you know it's a it's a, a sci-fi action thriller. I could very easily actually this movie was out at the same time as Seven. Yeah, and I could very easily see like a Brad Pitt in this role but i like that they chose someone who like ray finds obviously a very conventionally attractive man but like as far as hollywood leading men he like kind of has this like odd energy about him he's he's like because he plays a little pathetic the whole time and he can kind of do it with this look like i wouldn't believe brad pitt could be right. a little pathetic because he's just too perfectly sexy the whole time yeah um yeah and it was something that, uh, well, I sent you guys uh, an essay uh, a few days ago, but then there's another one that's related to it that I thought this was relevant to. And it's basically called Everyone's Beautiful and No One's Horny. Um, and it's yeah. talking about specifically MCU movies, but then in a broader context where like the kind of beauty that you're seeing in big Hollywood films now is like everyone is like genetically engineered and perfect looking, almost like like literal Ken dolls. We literally got one of those this year. And everyone's like the hottest thing you've ever seen, almost in a homogenized way. But like no one wants to touch each other and no one's like into that. Where this movie is sort of a a good example of that where like everyone is good looking, very good looking. Like if I saw any of these people in real life, they'd be some of the best looking people I've seen. But they're good looking in like ways you would believe, if that makes sense. Like they're still human. They still have like slight strange quirks to them. Like Ray Fiennes isn't a perfect leading man but then at the same time like jared was saying about like the outfits of him it's like he's clearly like kind of not sleazy but like he's you know he's 
he's a horny little dude and he like you can tell like he really wants things and like people are like bumping up against each other you can tell like people in this movie want to fuck but like no one no one in the mcu wants to do that they they just want to like bump their nubs against each other at best yeah in the 90s were overall just a hornier time in movies i mean the three (laughs) of us kind of spend a lot of time talking about a few articles on this topic right and (laughs) this movie's a good example i mean uh but it, like it adds to the theme. It's not just like, mm, good. I like when people are horny and hump. Um, but it like it adds to like the desperation and all the like desire that's just like teeming around the city the whole time. Whether it comes out in like sex or violence or or power over one another, and like it, it fits that they would all be like these really like gropy, graspy people, you know? Yeah, I mean, it also ties in thematically as well to the whole notion of being wired or the squid system itself is i mean faith even says at one point to lenny towards uh ray fine's character towards the end of of the film is i like it when they watch and that's kind of his which also ties into to the mirror aspect as well as in that memory of faith he's constantly staring into the mirror so he's not just looking and touching her but it's about watching her and that's kind of the whole appeal of that system is that it allows you to feel and watch and experience things that you wouldn't necessarily get to see yourself. Like there's that great scene where when he's sitting there basically hard selling the attorney on, he's like, I'm the magic man, whatever you desire, it can be yours. And whether or not that's running into a liquor store with a 357 Magnum, which is as Jared rightly points out, a tour de force scene to open the movie, or it's, you know, the most beautiful woman you've ever seen. And now, in a lot of interesting ways, Strange Days kind of pre-configures our modern, more more sexless times where everyone, you can perceive the most beautiful woman you've ever seen or most beautiful man you've ever seen and experience that secondhand. And that like almost there, but not quite enough has led to a real life scale back in, in sexual desire or sexual relationships. I mean, we've probably all seen like the economist articles being like, Oh my God, why aren't the teens horny? Which is ironic for, cause for like the whole <laughs> of recorded history, all the adults were like, why do the teens want to fuck? And now they're like, Oh my God, the teens aren't fucking. Yeah. So, and like to your point where, uh, w- with the squids, it's, it's because those experiences, there's no risk. Like nothing can go wrong. Right. Like if, if it's a, if the experience gets fucked up, then it's like, okay, whatever I take it off. But like when that happens in real life, you get rejected, you do something awkward. Like it doesn't work out like that hurts. Uh, so mm-hmm. now all of a sudden you don't have to put yourself at risk like that anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, perfect, perfect parallel to, to real life. And we're very much kind of hurtling towards the next <laughs> step of like these squids being, more or less current or contemporary right like we're we're how like we're like one generation of smart device away from like one person wearing a device on their face that's capturing all the sights and sounds that they're experiencing another person wearing a similar device and just redoing the whole thing from their point of view like i mean you could do that Mm -hmm. now listen you're in seattle you probably know some tech ghoul you could get that patented (laughs) you could get that going be a billionaire yeah but no but like just like just how easily like accessible like kind of those expressions of raw lust or mm. or sexuality are like i think is probably like a, a big big reason why like for exactly the reason jackson said that like if you're not putting anything on the line mm-hmm. by like pursuing these you know pursuing other other people for sex or love or affection then there's a whole allure of just 
kind of that vicarious nature that like you know technology allows us to sort of luxuriate in and this and movie kind of takes it to like the next level but it's it's like we're we are currently like not too far off from it yeah. now um yeah. like it, it doesn't get the specifics right but it gets the feelings correct um, yeah which is interesting that then the contrast to that with like the underground people is a rave which is like the polar opposite of that where everyone is physically tactilely bumping up against each other and it's like there's a nature of unpredictability about it yeah yeah well i mean we only have really the one scene to go off of, but the only time they actually show any of Lenny Nero's clients, it is like a working stiff, you know, mm-hmm. that, the guy that he's selling to is mm-hmm. not the type of guy that's going to show up at the rave so, yeah. slash like fuck the police rally. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. It's, the, it's the guy going back to our uh, office space episode that would put fuck the police up or in his car while he's driving to work at his tech job. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but but speaking of fuck the police, um, that like this, I think is a really interesting time capsule too. Like I, I kept thinking about it, like this is such an incredible like '90s movie because this is so specifically an LA movie that was written, conceived, and designed in the early '90s, talking about the late '90s. But like it, it's talking about in a way that they're still stuck in the problem of the early '90s and. So, you know, probably while this was being made, actually, literally while this was being made, uh, the O.J. Simpson trial and the the, the car chase thing happened. And Catherine uh, Bigelow even commented on that. I was like, oh, I need to, like, judge this up in different ways because this is relevant <laughs> to what I'm writing about. But, um, you know, the Rodney King riots are pretty directly paralleled here. Another interesting pushback is uh, that people were talking about how like LA like this is like comically chaotic like this is not what LA looks like it's not gonna look like this in a few years you stretched it way too far and Catherine Bigelow essentially just uh, responded back it's like well yeah in like the nice middle class white neighborhoods yeah LA doesn't in downtown LA doesn't look like that at all but it currently looks like this in the places that you don't have to go to so like what I think some of the best speculative fiction does it takes real life things and it, it and it kind of just combines it, dials it up just a little bit to show it's this like dark mirror of the present by showing the future. And um, I think the funniest little line that was in there is I think Ray finds early on is listening to the radio and basically what they're trying to convey is like, oh, everything's so fucked up because of what's on the radio and what they're talking about. And the guy's like, gas is over three dollars now. There are kids <laughs> killing each other at school. <laughs> I'm fucking sick and tired of this. And I'm like, oh, honey. Oh, is that the worst? Oh, oh that sounds yeah. so bad. Is that uncommon? <laughs> yeah. I think that's also an, an, an interesting way to look at Bigelow as an artist as well. Is because so, as I think Jared alluded to early, James Cameron conceived of this script in 86 and wrote it in the part that supposedly interested Cameron. This is a little apocryphal now is both the squid receptor element of the script and the basically love triangle where Lenny is still in love with Faith and needs Macy's help to go save her. So the woman who loves you and you don't know, you're using to go save the woman you love who doesn't love you. Mm. So that would also be very James Cameron, like thinking about the Titanic or even Avatar or some of his later work. But Bigelow, as you mentioned, was influenced by, she was part of the cleanup for the Rodney King riots. So she was downtown, kind of in the thick of it, and was spoke about being confronted with the economic disparity there, the rage there, totally justifiable rage, of course. The LAPD is a military force. So I think it's interesting, be curious to hear y'all's thoughts about how 
she was able to take a story that that could have been a, a pretty standard noir love triangle and and shoehorn in or Trojan horse in uh, quite a bit of social commentary that aptly reflects, unfortunately, both our current reality <laughs> and yeah. the reality of L.A. at the time. Sure. I mean, I think we're, we're covering a lot of the individual points there kind of throughout, but mm-hmm. I do think it's a reversal of like what you might consider like the typical roles that James Cameron is the one that wrote the like the romance story, the sort of the, mm-hmm. the adventure, the love triangle. And it, and it was Catherine Bigelow that really is the one that like grittied it up. Yeah, 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 I think that I think that's like an amazing kind of role reversal that you'd usually see in something like this. But I think that um, I don't know. I I I almost want to like kind of point point out something that doesn't work for me in this movie is I think I can feel the passage of time between 1986 when it was first conceived of and almost a decade later when it was able to be viewed. It's almost I, I I I think like the just the 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 amount that that compresses the amount of time before we get to like this future state almost like muddies the waters where like if you're thinking about the difference between 1986 and 2000 that's enough time to pass to kind of speculate what the future is going to be like if you're compressing that down to like four years five Mm -hmm. years all of a sudden it, it it sort of stops becoming speculative fiction it stops becoming science fiction and it really just becomes social commentary as the main flavor. And like, mm-hmm. and honestly, like, am I supposed to believe that like technology will jump forward that much in like four or five years from when I'm watching this? Yeah. I felt but, the same way. I know what you're saying it, there. Like, like it almost has like, it almost makes the science fiction elements of it let like so much less uh, believable or so much less of a focus that it really, really like the, 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 the social stuff really starts to like overpower it in a lot of ways. And I'm not saying that like, I dislike that. I mean, I love that this movie is so of its time. Like this movie can only exist in the time after Rodney King gets beaten and before the turn of the millennium, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's a, it's an, it's a really fascinating time capsule because of that. But I think also because of that and for a variety of other ways we'll get into later, it hasn't aged particularly well. And also, like, it, it doesn't surprise me that it wasn't, like, super successful at the time either. Mm. Yeah, it's in, that's, that's a good point. And, like, like you were saying, I I personally like that the sci-fi is toned down for the the, the social commentary or the mess, like, the sociological storytelling, I suppose, would be the best way to put it. Um, which is, like, I would say that's what the best episode, when Black Mirror is good, that's what Black Mirror is doing where it introduces a new technology, but it's sort of beside the point. It's just like, let's just twist some things around and see how people behave, uh, given my current understanding of like how society works at the moment. And I think that's what this is doing for the most part. But I do see like, I, I felt the same way where it's like, really in 1995, they really thought the world was going to be this different in four fucking years. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable point. And also if you go look and see what are some of the bigger sci-fi movies of the 90s like i mean obviously the matrix probably is is the biggest that's set pretty far in the future gattaca some of the other ones they're set pretty decent far decently far into the 2000s and i I wonder if somewhat i mean this is of course we'll never know the answer but given when cameron was working on the script or the treatment that he wrote as well as what he was coming off of 
in the time period. I wonder in the aesthetic of this film, really, I wonder how much he was thinking, I want to do my own Blade Runner. Because uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's some Blade Runner from it. I mean, it's definitely more on the ground than Blade Runner because, you know, Blade Runner is set way further in the future. Although I will give yeah. it a lot of credit that there is a lot of courage to make something this close in the future because you're, I mean, you're calling your fucking shot and you're, you're, you're like planning a flag where if I say like here in 2024 now, it's like, oh, by like 2080, maybe these will happen. It's like, it's so far away that I can kind of say whatever I want. But if I want to make a prediction about 2026... Now I'm starting to get a little more, like, I'm putting more on the line. But in this movie's defense, it does accurately predict just to the extent that people will, uh, you know, obsessively lose themselves in content, right? Mm -hmm. In video games in particular, I think, is probably the most, like, kind of prescient when when it's predicting video game culture. And it predicts something, I think, a little bit deeper where, um, it's like our relationship to the technology, not so much what the technology is going to do specifically, but how that changes us. Cause it really reminded me a lot of the, like the particular like snuff films and like the rape films and stuff like that. It's like, Oh, that's the shit that was being shown to me when I was 12 when during like the more like wild West era of the internet before uh, YouTube and stuff where it's like, you know, the shittiest friend you have would send you a random link and you click on it. It's like, oh, wow, I just watched a baby get sawed in half. That's the worst shit I've ever seen. Thanks. But like those videos were all over the place shortly after the year 2000. So she definitely yeah. did understand. It's like, hey, if we had the Internet or something like the Internet, this is what we're going to use it for. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. I mean, if you think about the stuff that Lenny's peddling, aside from the straight up snuff films, a lot of it you could go to like Reddit and find within 15 seconds. Yeah. Even if even you knew some, the worst channels to go down, they're available. Yeah. So I think and I think that is also interesting as, as the movie points out. And we talked about a little bit earlier is that it does make us more observers in life. And we don't we don't need to take those risks, mm-hmm. whether or not they be a relationship or something more extreme. I guess if we've we've got that those dark urges and now everyone can just kind of get enough of a taste to be like, all right, I'm good. <laughs> uh, Satisfy the morbid curiosity and then move along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now, like speaking of like the time that this was written and what it's commenting on, this is something that it's not now I would say a uh, a an obsession of mine, but definitely something I'm really interested in culturally. And it's the idea of the end of history where in 1992, there's this uh, political scientist named Francis Fukuyama. And he's commenting on this idea that like the USSR has fallen. The major, the major socialist communist bloc is gone. All major powers now are Western liberal democracies. There's the exception of China, but they're kind of already liberalizing as well. And uh, to do a quick quote, his basic thesis is like humanity has reached not just the passing of a particular period of post-war history, but the end of history as such. That is the end point of mankind's ideological evolution in the universal universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. Basically he's taken an interesting interpretation of Hegel and saying, you know, uh, society advances in a certain direction. It pushes and pulls. It get and it reaches a higher point. And he's basically calling a shot and saying, uh, "The Cold War just ended, and it's proving out once and for all that Western liberal democracy and capitalism 
bam, we got it. it it's proven right in the pudding. So now there's going to be no more changes. There's going to be no more upheavals. It's just going to kind of be small tweaks and management for the rest of forever and ever. Amen. And as we've seen in the last 31 years since that got written, that's not true at all. <laughs> um, but it does like there is this sense in the 90s, like up until 2001, I would say with 9-11, that's like the big shock uh, or a wake up call from that idea that culturally people kind of did feel that way for good and ill. I would say this is like a lament about that where it's like, this is it. Like we're going to be doing exactly this shit for the rest of forever until the sun explodes. And I think Catherine Bigelow is really concerned about that uh, dogmatism. Yeah, she puts it directly into uh, Max's mouth. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Where that was one of my favorite quotes. I, I made a point to stop, and uh, yeah, he said, "Like you know how I know it's the end of the world because everything has been done. Like our imagine, like our imagination is done thinking of anything outside of anything that hum- everything human beings have done up until now for the last who knows many thousand years since we crawled out of the water. We're, we've done it all. There's nothing left to try." Um, and I think this movie is like a, a basic exercise in uh, something that I'm going to bring up. Mark Fisher, not shocking that in 2009, he's talking, looking back now, seeing like basically the failure of this idea. Where it's getting critiques in the 90s, too, of course. But after 9-11, after 2008, it becomes really clear that like, Francis, come on, you, you might not have been right there where he says something about a, a very favorite film of mine, which I think is a great comparison to this as well, is watching Children of Men, we're inevitably reminded of the phrase attributed to thinkers as Frederick Jameson and Slavoj Zizek, that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. And I think that's yeah. this movie to a T. Like, well, it, it sees basically the apocalypse, but the apocalypse, I guess, is better than the end of whatever world order we're currently working under. Yeah, well, and, and I I think that like my my favorite critique of you know Fukuyama's book is that it, it's sort of like that, just suggesting that liberal democracy is like the the best endpoint that we could reach as a human society is like such a like a privileged point of view, like hubris, right? Yeah, exactly. Or and you know it's like probably only true if you happen to fall under like whatever dominant race social class sex that like you know the the um the like the hegemony like has has lifted up right right and this movie does a such a rad thing that is seems obvious on the surface but if you think of like a lot of speculative fiction a lot of dystopian fiction oftentimes it's there's this like this thing where oppression has become unilateral, right? Where like everyone is equally oppressed. And in this movie, they don't, they're not fucking with that. Like they're keeping it grounded in real life where the people that are being oppressed are still people of color. It's still women. It's still sex workers. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that this movie is a good, like push back to that whole kind of end of history idea in that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, I mean, I also think, a lot of times these dystopian films get praised for confirming the biases of the more cynical intellectual classes of our day. So, I mean, I think Children of Men's an amazing film and there's plenty of other dystopian movies that I think are great. But the reason they garner so much acclaim is the people are like, all right, 
who are smart or consider the intellectual class are saying, all right, this is what I think is wrong with society now. And then I'm going to project it 50 years in the future and make it even worse. And I think that, so it's a little interesting that both it's so close to the time it was written. And I also think what's fascinating, and maybe this is something you might bump against because it does seem to be positing a little bit of change within the system is possible whether or not that system is our current socioeconomic system or the current just social structures. Because right at the very end of the movie, there's a little bit of Deus Ex Cop where it's like the one good cop who happens to get the tape, but he makes the correct decision. And then you also have Lenny rejecting his wired mentality or his former love, leaving her standing on the hotel balcony, even after she goes out of her way to try and help him at the very end to go be with Macy. And then one shot that I really like as he's coming out of the limo to go back to be with her is you see the Goodyear blimp and it just said it's going to be a good year. Yeah. So like, yeah. I don't know, maybe there's a little bit of this is Hollywood bullshit, but I think there's a humanism within Bigelow's filmmaking here as positing that, yeah, maybe we have all of these fissures in society right now, whether it be the racial oppression that's going on, the socioeconomic oppression that's going on, but maybe in the new century we'll be able to progress uh unfortunately she wasn't she wasn't proven entirely right there um but you yeah. know we've made some strides and and this is uh a point that i was going to bring up later but yeah no I, I totally felt the same way and i honestly your same question popped in my head is like oh i i, I really feel you know i'm not in the mind of captain bigelow but this film feels like that ending was tacked on because it was yeah. a Hollywood film. We got to get the two hot people together to kiss. We got to make sure that like, okay, we ragged on the police. They're bad. But like, it's because the people are bad. So we need the good ones. And here's the good one. And like, he comes out of nowhere. He's just like a guy that gets brought up early. And like you said, deus ex cop. Like he just kind of drops in out of nowhere. That's and, not my point though. I, I like the ending. I think the ending is earned. And I think that huh. it's okay to have a humanistic view on the future even if it hasn't necessarily been borne out i, I think, don't think yeah. there's i don't think so let's say let's play it out here so let's say the cop doesn't step in or he allows angela bassin's character macy to be shot or beaten down and when never comes back down what do you gain from that move how is that any different than 300 movies I've already seen in the noir genre that basically posit life is shit and you can't get out of the system. I mean, that's then I, mean, I would say I would want there, there, there seemed like a point and I was waiting for it where like the cops then turn on Angela Bassett and they start, you know, beating the shit out of her. The ending that would have been more interesting is not the cops save today, but it's the like the masses come in and they save the day. Like they band together and they push against the militarized cops. That would have well, been that, that also happens. That, that happens, right? Yeah. But then, but like, but it's just them. They don't need sanctioning well, from the commissioner. They don't need state like approval. It's just people coming together and knowing what's right. Yeah, I don't know. I I, th I think that like there's a big difference between like naivete and just plain optimism. Yeah, and like I I mean I think that there's might be a little bit of both here, but I'm kind of on Jackson's side where I'm choosing to 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 view it as um you know more earned optimism than so, than it being just purely naive. So would you say cuz in that light and and I think you're right in in that sense or at least that's the ethos that Bigelow's coming from 
So would you say this is still an end of history kind of movie where it's not uh, imagining any alternatives. It's just saying, let's, let's be more let's human. Make, let's, let's make the most out of what we have. This is the best it's going to get. Let's all like try to yeah. turn, turn this thing into a utopia. But it, I mean, well, I don't know if it's interested in utopia. It's saying like we, everything is like structures are set the way they are and they are, in, they're good if we have good people in them and we need more commissioners unless like those two cops, I forget the actors' names, but uh, one of them, Vincent D'Onofrio and William Fitchner. I, Fitchner, both, I knew both. You you knew Fitchner, but not D'Onofrio, huh? Yeah, yeah. weird. I couldn't say that Ray. Is Pine, a little, that so. is a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they were like fucking goblins from the get go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I yeah. actually think actually I view the 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 fact that they're that the corruption isn't bone deep in the LAPD as like a plot twist. Mm, in yeah. this movie because oh, i mean yeah. just, just all the way to the top d'onofrio acting like the fucking terminator just guns <laughs> yeah. blazing sprinting after whoever he needs to kill and just fucking like executing people in the street and just he shoots like 10 people at the end trying <laughs> to shoot macy oh yeah um like the movie sort of like plays on that trope where if we we know this is sort of a dystopian vision of the future that we can assume it's a police state right mm, yeah and they i mean they drop plenty of evidence that this is another one of those movies so by the end when it's kind of shocking that that's not the case i kind of fucking dig it hmm. yeah because no yeah, i agree like, oh, here, sorry go ahead yeah i mean you totally expect when you have when you see her take the take the tape to the cop in the bathroom you're like the next shot i'm gonna see is her being dragged out of the room and his boot heel coming down on this tape to grind it into a thousand little silicon pieces right so i think it is interesting to have it reverse that and whether or not it's a movie about whether institutions can change because of good people. I think this is a certain naivete to think that if we change the system, the people are going to change as well. Cause if, if this is the end of history, that doesn't necessarily mean that's inherent in that argument is that we've solved people. So we've created the best system to allow people to function the best. Or maybe the argument is that, we will never solve people. We've just created the best system. I think Bigelow's movie lands on the side that we're never going to create the most perfect system, as Jared said, but perhaps we can be a little more kind, a little more empathetic. I mean, even think about the reason that Macy is attracted to or stands by Lenny, despite all of the shitty things he does throughout the course of the movie is it is, we don't know what her husband's arrested for, but it seems to be something pretty messed up because she says he's doing hard time. It's him sitting on the bed next to her boy and taking care of him yeah. and reading him a story on what is undoubtedly the worst day of his life so far. Yeah, but that's I like that that's the direction that the movie goes because it is honest about the bad things that are happening. It's not like this is some Paplum Hollywood movie. It just chooses, I guess, a more gentle view towards the end, which is an odd thing to say about a movie that contains quite a bit of <laughs> content. <laughs> It's a, yeah. it's a, it's uplifting, you know. It's a feel good <laughs> film. But, 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 let's say that this, there, there's just no way in hell this movie would be accepted now, right? Yeah. Like it, it was, a, it was like a few short years away from you know Rodney King esque incidents escalating and becoming far more common. And mm-hmm. nowadays, yeah, it it does just come across as this like misguided nightmare. Yeah, which that can't be helped by her by her case. Sure. Yeah, right, That's right, right. Hurt. 
is yeah. watching. Uh, so, you know, the central conceit of this is that they have on tape uh, two cops killing uh, an unarmed black, all three of them, I think all three or no, two, two unarmed black men, yeah, one of yeah. them being a significant, you know, social political figure. Um, and that that was going to bring the whole city down when that comes out. Yeah. I'm like, no, it won't. Uh, it's Tuesday. Won't. Like that's, that would have been, I mean, she can't, of course, see into the future of 2020 and 2024, but like that would have been the ending that would have been yeah. the most reflective is it gets out. Everyone sees it. Nothing changes. Yeah. That's, yeah. The, that's the same. That's the same little misguided innocence that like led people to believe that like the, the it was, you know, those Epstein documents coming out this week yeah, are going to bring yeah, the yeah. whole system down. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, we're uh, currently getting a list of known pedophiles. Oh, in oh shit. Do you guys, do you guys know that Bill Clinton is a sexual deviant? It's like, yeah, we've known for years. <laughs> Surprise. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, I, I, was surprised, I was surprised to see so much Stephen Hawking though. Yeah. That was a tough <laughs> one. Steve, I'll, don't. Also, like Matt Groening, who invented The Simpsons, apparently was like had a thing for like you know teenage girls to give them foot massages. Ooh, oh, don't do that. that yeah, bad. There, I didn't there even were, know there that were, one. There were some bad. There was some bad stuff in there. Yeah, wow. it's like that is a bummer. Because even at the time, like they had the cynicism, like Watergate had happened, and they noticed that nothing changed, or like you know we can speed it up to now at the Panama Papers and stuff like that. That didn't do anything. So like, yeah, I guess that would have been the real ending. That if this was made today, it would have. The tape would have come out and not like they would have hired a, a, a black commissioner and that would have been the change that, that, right, all that right. happened. Yeah. Very, it would have been far more performative even than what we got in the movie. Yeah. yeah like, yeah. but I don't know. Just uh, to Jackson's previous point, like, let's say, yeah, she did just like get shot or get had the shit beaten out of her. And like, you know, there isn't a, a turn, a surprisingly happy turn at the end. Like, how much of a bummer is that? Is that really what, like, Black Angelinos in 1995 needed to see more of? Like, seriously, like, I, I I really like the ending of this movie. I don't think it's, like... And, it, yeah, I guess my critique is less, like, yeah, I, I mean, I disagree with, like, the analysis of where she thinks it would end. I guess it's just the theme kind of came out of nowhere for me, where it's, like, it was not punishingly bleak but like it, it its face was right in the mud the whole time and like the last 10 minutes it's like eh, never mind yeah well the whole movie though is still about redemption and about trying to save people i mean the True. whole impetus behind lenny's actions as crazy as they might seem isn't just that he loves faith and he's a loser and he can't get over her. that's certainly part of it but there's also the aspect relatable he, <laughs> also the aspect of uh her being like in the clutches of the Philo Gans character, the the sort of like Machiavellian evil mm, mo mm -hmm. movie or music producer. And then Macy chasing Lenny around because she still remembers the guy who sits on the bed with her boys. So I, it doesn't feel crazy to me thematically that that's necessarily what it, where it would end up. And I mean, I do, I do agree to a certain extent that hindsight, hindsight is uh 2024, yeah. but <laughs> at the same time, I mean, in the wake of the Derek Chauvin thing, the George Floyd thing, there were massive protests all across the United States. He gets life in prison. I mean, I don't think that that's necessarily, we've seen massive structural changes, but there have been some incremental ones. Whereas 50 years ago, I mean, the guy who beat Rodney King, who I'm sad to say, whose name I don't even remember, he straight up got off. Yeah, he's just fine. Yeah. The riots. So whether or not we have, solved anything i think we can all agree that we haven't trump still might be on the ticket next year or this year 
but I do think that there has been some progress, so I'm not sure I would take quite as bleak a view of it as you guys do, but maybe that's neoliberal naivety on my side. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, it's an old reformer revolution argument, I guess, at this point. Yeah. Um, but oh, it did rhyme while we were talking about this, that um, one of my favorite science fiction writers, Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, wrote something. Mm. I don't think she meant it to be an end of history thing. I would actually have to figure out when this quote was written, uh, but I pulled it up where it's, uh, you know, we live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. And I think this movie is pointing at that, where like it feels like everything, like everything is closed, everything is done. Like there's no escaping. No one, no, like yeah, this LA felt so. No one can leave this city. Like it feels well, like yeah. you're yeah. trapped there. Yeah. And well, this well, very uh, last moment, you do feel this, you know, little bit of light breakthrough that maybe we can get out of this. Yeah, well, and also I think it's like interesting that it's set in LA, which obviously is always this kind of like a lot of culture begins there, right? Mm -hmm. And it gets transmitted to the world directly, and that's only increased even in the 30 years since this movie. And that the movie is largely about something that also like out that it probably actually rightly predicted, and it was this movie is so much about the democratization of entertainment, mm, yeah. like like just actually taking the power away from the like the the music producers in their castle on high and just putting it into the hands of the people and how dangerous that is when yeah, like the yeah. people can actually just use their own bodies their own minds to like entertain each other mm -hmm. um, i think that that goes like kind of right along with that line of thought hmm. yeah that um that's actually interesting th that you say that like there there was a I've, I've been listening to some essays by james baldwin and he was commenting exactly on that and this is him in the fifties talking about African culture. And he's saying that's the biggest difference that he noticed, but when he traveled to Africa and learned about how their culture works is ours. It's like, so isolated where it's like me, one man, I write a book alone in my room and I send it out to the masses and they read about me and my alone thoughts. And there's no connection between me and this person. Not, not specifically. And, uh, he was saying that what he noticed in African culture is it's always so much more, uh, in a communal context where stories are told orally amongst one another in group gatherings or music is created. He said the closest thing that Americans have is jazz to that, uh, mm -hmm. where it's like audience and performer are much more intertwined with one another, which is kind of funny too. Now I'm thinking about it in 2024. It's like, we're kind of starting to get that with the internet, but it's in this really bizarre way, you know? Oh, so jazz is supposed to be like a communal sacred thing. Or, or it's like, it's the closest thing we, yeah, <laughs> sorry, sorry. I've been listen, listening to a lot of whiplash content yeah, yeah, yeah. the past few days. But it's like the, the way that like jazz operates culturally, at least within live performance and stuff like that, it's much more of a back and forth and much more of a, like, it, it's not meant to be ripped out of its context and then consumed somewhere else, you know? And I think that's what you're saying about like, that's part of the democratization of art that you're seeing in, uh, in, in this film that they're, they're trying to point towards is that it's right. much more about the relationship between people than like, Oh, me and my big brain, I made a thing and now right. go listen well, to it over there. But also like just to now extend that to all of like capitalist society, right? Yeah. If like, if the entertainment industry can be democratized and you know, the, the, the monolith can be broken down. What's to say that isn't a symptom of the same thing being able to happen to capitalism at large. And I think yeah. that's why, yeah. why Ray finds is or Lenny Nero is considered so dangerous yeah no that uh yeah this has helped me understand this ending a little bit better because i did i definitely did give it a much more simpler critique it's like eh, well they think everything's good and i think it's bad so that's stupid 
Well, well, yeah, just how much is the public sentiment around the squid and actually getting wired and viewing clips? Like how, how much is public sentiment about, about that going to shift because of this mm. scandal? Oh, right? yeah, around question it. about the squid. Is it legal? Is there a legal way to consume squids? Or is it doesn't, No, it's it's totally illegal. Yeah. Within the That was my yeah. understanding. It's I not just that it's not just that he's like using it as sex work. It's completely illegal. Okay. That, yeah. that that's why I thought, but I was like, I wondered if there's like a you know an above board way to use a squid. Which I yeah. mean for like therapy like in paprika. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Or projecting out, I mean, I could definitely see it being like a military training exercise, like some Edge of Tomorrow type shit. Where like mm. these guys all got wiped out, but they were wearing squids, so that when we send in the next squadron, they're going to know exactly how to navigate this particular corner. Or oh, man. yeah, there's a lot of storytelling you put in this world. Yeah, so that would, but yes, within as far as we know, there is no legal legal way to do. Do the squid thing. Um, but speaking of squids, I think that's actually the most interesting fact that we have a, a woman behind the camera with all this because this is a very much like peeping Tom voyeuristic, mm-hmm. uh, like male gazy kind of film. And if you gave this to a man, like there are some fucked up scenes, some really sexually violent scenes in this. And like at yeah. no point does it fetishize what's going on there. Like you're still seeing everything happen. It's not actually what I thought was interesting is sometimes when they decide to linger on like, you know, a, a man looking at a woman's naked body, uh, you can tell he's like looking too long and it stops becoming sexy and it starts becoming kind of weird. And it's like, then reflect, like it's, in, uh, it's indicting yeah. the audience of like, this is, Hey, so this this, is that, that's your idea is why like Juliet Lewis is like so objectified in this movie. Right. Yeah. It's like, it, it's, we're, we're meant to be skeeved out by it because all the men in her life sort of do that to her. Right. Yeah. 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 And I think, uh, I think a male touch would have toned that down just enough that you don't feel that tension. Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely that subtext is text. There's even the scene where Gantz, the the evil music producer guy, like slaps Juliet Lewis's character. And is like the only time a horse should open her mouth is when she's giving head. And it's yeah, like, it's like, ew, gross. Fuck yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Well, thanks. Or it's for like, being- yeah, a, a man writing that line, it would have been a little cooler, you know, like it would have, had a, it would have been a little more clever and you'd be like, Ooh, that's fucked up. Like kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. Right, but there's right, also, right, right. that's kind of the, the reason as well that, that Lenny is, you know, trying to save faith or whatever is. So in those early scenes with, with Lenny and faith, yeah, she's also like half naked, but it's also much more of like a relationship type vibe. You can tell that yeah. these are two people who live together love each other, have sex, like in or within a relationship. Whereas when she's on stage, there's a lot of like performative sexual energy in terms of this is how I get fans. This is how I become mm-hmm. famous. This is what I need to do in order to rise to the top of this entertainment game. So yeah, I definitely think that that's part of it. And I think Bigelow even talks about it. She says that, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Lorena Bobbitt case, but oh, she yeah. said that was also on her mind. Yeah, uh, so, I don't Dan, know. Dan, so so Lorena Bobbitt's husband, John Bobbitt, uh, allegedly, I'll, I'll use allegedly through this whole recap, uh, allegedly was, you know, being abusive, sexually abusive, kind of like, you know, raping her within their marriage mm. type of shit. And she fucking relieved him of his member. Oh, I do know this story. Yeah. Okay, and okay. Uh, yeah. drove her, drove, like, you know, tossed it out the window yep, of her yep. moving car down the street. And, um, 
uh, excuse me, allegedly relieved him of his member and allegedly <laughs> tossed it from the moving car right. or moving car down the street. Isn't that pretty easy to prove? Well, it was the member alleged. has been removed. Was she was she actually convicted? She's actually served time for that. No, I don't think so she did. No, it was alleged. So apparently she she allegedly removed it with a kitchen knife while he slept. And then it was allegedly reattached. Uh, <laughs> and then during the trial, I believe she got off due to reason of insanity. <laughs> well, but like, it's not allegedly gone. His dick's gone. They nope. put it back on. They put it back. You on. can put it back on. Then he became. Then he briefly uh, sort of uh, used his fifteen minutes of fame to do things like briefly be a WWF superstar. Oh my and god! And stuff like that. Wait, and this makes that '90s song "Detachable Penis" make so much more sense. It's actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Weird, Weird Al also had a song about it in like 1996. <laughs> yeah, uh, so. but that, yeah. That's uh, going back to the film and not you know cock chopping. Um, that's interesting. <laughs> wait, wait, yeah, wait, yeah. What, what? Why did we bring that up? Because I know that like Bigelow like actually did cite that and the Rodney King riots as like being yeah, major inspirations. Did. So what's up with the Bobbit thing? So she did. I think the reason she cited Bobbitt is, as you mentioned, the abuse within a relationship. So I think it, I imagine it had her thinking about the ways that even within relationships that are considered kosher and legal in the eyes of the law, women can still be victims and fall right. Use of yeah, men. like so, that whole power dynamic. Like there's still yeah. power imbalances that can exist within, like yeah, quote unquote, legally sanctioned ma- marriages. Right. So that would would fall into the faith character as well is, mm-hmm. I mean, you see her get slapped around. And in fact, Max once is ordered to kill her by Philo at the end of the movie. Max seems to treat her as a possession. Like there's a whole super skeevy scene of her, him like choking her out in order to, to mislead Lenny. And he's very clearly into it. So I think that was that plays into uh, the thematic uh, elements of the film as well. Is it fucked up that I then did check did harvey weinstein produce this one he did not <laughs> yeah but that like that goes in we're still having that conversation today with all like the me too stuff and like there are people that are still like oh well you know if she wanted to be an actress she knew that was part of the the you know part uh, of the grind yeah. oh like, my god the casting, the casting couch is a time-honored tradition yeah like that yeah. still exists today yeah so gross i guess coming coming full circle shout out Catherine bigelow for her optimism we're sorry we did not do better. <laughs> As the about Lorena Bobbitt for like proving to women all around the globe that they can do better. Yeah, hell, hell yeah, Lorena. But they they do have options. Yeah, um, although and the most, very, or sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the most fucked up thing is he's the one who got the most out of it. As Jared said, he got to be a professional wrestler for a little bit, starred in a couple adult films, showing off his uh, reattached okay. dong. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> For all her efforts, he still came out ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I wonder. She must have written at least one one best selling book about it. I would like to read it. I'd read. I just, yeah, just, yeah, just assume there's at least one book. Yeah, there's gotta yeah. be. So one line that I thought was really interesting that like she couldn't have predicted that this would be really really relevant today because so much technology had to happen. That I think it is Ray Fiennes says this again. That it's like the difference between movies, so like a film, and playback, which in the context of this one is like the the squid playbacks is that when it's over, there's credits. And I think that's really interesting in like today's age of like social media, of always being a brand online, of always performing, where it's like when a story is over, whether it's a book or a movie or a TV show, like you know it has a finite end. It says we're done. 
the story's over. But like now that we live in social media, or like most of our identity, a lot of our identities portrayed out there, there's no end to it. You're always performing. There is no end credits. And it's like, okay, now I'm done. Now I'm going to go be a person. And I think that's really interesting that she's like, was kind of in tune with that about what some of this sort, this style of media can do. Yeah. Like that basically that people at, are a, always certain, at, a, at a certain like inflection point would, yeah, maybe by by and large, be more interested in the mundanity of someone's life or or the excitement of someone's life that sort of living vicariously through a real person, like mm. even like maybe reality TV is like mm. another example yeah. or yeah. like a, br- yeah. a bridge point between the two. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or the or on the flip side is that you live your life knowing you're always being like monitored in some way where um you know we all you you make jokes all the time it's like oh I can't Google that I'm gonna wind up on a list. Um, where everything that you do, you know that in some way, shape, or form, like you're being watched, like someone can record it, somebody like somebody can see it. If you're typing anything on the internet, anything on a forum, anything to express yourself, like you're always performing. It it doesn't end until you throw your phone into the water, you die. Yeah. And not to be pedantic here, but I do think it is somewhat important to note thematically for the film that it is Macy saying that. Oh, it's Macy. Sorry, my bad. To Lenny's character to make the point of you need to live your life and stop going back through this old relationship that you have on these on these discs here for your squid machine with faith, which I mean, plays into your point as well Is I mean, how many times do people talk about like had to block all my ex on everything mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or people on their Instagram or whatever after they get out of a relationship will go delete every picture that they have with that person because they don't want a record of that being perceived of who they were. So, you know, we do create these curated digital selves and we and do we go back to relive through them. Not only do we create it to the public, but like in that way where you go into your own camera roll and you'll delete all that too. You're creating it for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Where yeah. Um, if you think about it, like most of your memories are what you've photographed. Like if you didn't take a picture of it, that memory is going to fade way quicker than the stuff that you wound up taking a picture of. Yeah. Did, yeah. Did, 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 on that topic, did either of you guys, when you first watched this in the beginning scenes, assume that the, um, the clips were a recording of like subjective memory and not an actual, just like objective true to life recording. Like the first time I watched it, like I, I think it might just be something about Juliet Lewis's performance, like seems like dream, dreamlike or unrealistic or just like mm-hmm. not, 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 um, oh, I see it's still stilted in some way that it yeah. feels more like a memory than an actual recording. Mm-hmm. Like well, you thought it was like going through rose colored glasses a little bit. Is and is there any actual ambiguity in, in of that in that in the movie, or is it just cut and dry? Like the, what we're seeing is like a perfect record of what really happened. I actually assumed that it was totally subjective because when he's giving the speech to the person he's talking about, or his potential customer, he's talking about this is the real life shit directly for someone's brain. This is not just TV, but better. So TV better, you would assume that it is like essentially a really high tech GoPro, like contact lenses, cameras or something like that. But as you pointed out, Jared, both the way that is how Ray finds sees faith in that moment in their relationship. Or even when he's talking to the other guy, when he's trying to get, when he's going through like his sales early in the movie and he's talking to the other guy who basically he wants to like film a threesome or had filmed a threesome. It was like, all right, so this is pretty good, but what I need you to do here is move your eyes much slower, be more sensual. So, like, it is the subjective, but maybe that makes a point that it's more 
of an objective, but that you can create it subjectively. I think, but, yeah, I, th I don't know. I think, th I think there are clues either way. Like yeah. I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out for myself if it's intentionally ambiguous or, or if the movie mm -hmm. is taken, like is, you know, trying to, put all its cards you so, know, on the table and present one way or the other. I think you might be right that it's kind of both, where it took me a while to realize, like, oh, can you feel what they're feeling? At first, like, the first scene, I thought it was like what Jack oh, was saying. Yeah. It's just like a really fancy GoPro. You just put it on. It's like your eyes. Like, you're you're not feeling the emotional state. You're not feeling it on your body. It's just like, you know, for, like, the sex yeah. scenes, it's just, like, really good porn or something like that. Yeah. Um, but then later, I think they put it in the text where it's like, no, you can feel emotionally everything. If if someone yeah. hits their body, you feel it on your body. So because of, especially the emotional state, it has yeah. to be subjective. It can't be yeah. objective. Right, that's you're right. The whole right, thing right. about how horrifying that rape scene is. is yeah, that yeah. He puts the, the, the wire of him on her yeah. so she can feel how excited right. he is about yeah. the yeah, awful exactly. thing that he's supposed to do. Right. Which oh, that's is, so fucked. That's such and a fucked scene. Yeah. Which and then is the why act everyone loses their mind when they experience it themselves. Right. right. And then the, the actors that we get to see experiencing it secondhand like we see Ray Fine, we see Ray Fine's, you know, like in like brutal detail, like experiencing every moment. We actually see yeah. him, and uh, all I could think of is every time is like, what a fucking like that's a lot to ask of an actor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, like you have to like pretend that you're seeing this, that you're feeling it, that you're feeling absolute crippling revulsion but also profound sexual pleasure at the same time <sighs> and oh. it skeeves you out but you also have to enjoy it in some way or another yeah like okay. that is one of the more extreme things i've ever seen an actor have to approximate in a movie yeah <laughs> that is yeah. definitely a tough scene to play yeah that is such like i you know i've seen some and, perverted stuff on screen before but that's got to be up there with one of the just more disgusting things put on screen yeah i mean and but still st still shot with a lot of grace and like a, right. a, yeah. a, a lot of restraint but just because of the implication yeah <laughs> you know it's uh it's it's horrifying yeah and, yeah i'm not to say and, like oh she's a pervert for doing that it shouldn't be done it's like show like one of the most depraved things I've seen depicted, I suppose. Yeah. And, uh, and honestly, uh, I got, I got to say like one of the few things about this movie that I, I, like, I didn't think they really pulled off is I do think that those scenes are really ambitious and um, I don't think like everyone's necessarily rising to the occasion every time. Like I think it, it's, they're kind of silly. It can get like a little I, pulpy yeah. acting from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a lot to ask. Like you said, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not Rafe Fine's fault that like I didn't utterly believe that he was really <laughs> experiencing that because it's fucking possible. This you know? inconceivable yeah. blend of emotion. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But Jackson, uh, something you mentioned earlier that's like this is a real life thing that happened to me. As I remember, uh, when I still had Facebook, <laughs> I remember. <laughs> oh oh my god! No. Yeah. <laughs> what what a segue! That yeah, that was. Uh, that uh, reminds me of the all time greatest letterbox review, like the number one review in all of letterbox. You guys know what it is? No, it's oh, it's for them from the movie Joker. Okay, with Joaquin Phoenix, it's the it's the highest rated review on all of letterbox. It's the guy just said this happened to my buddy Eric. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fucked. 
Anyway, yeah. Tell, oh. tell us about what this reminded you of in your real life, Dan. When Jackson mentioned how you delete people's uh, like existence off your phone, off your social media, you block them. Or actually, I remember like you know I was on Facebook and I was and, uh, I was dating a girl in real life not on Facebook. But then we broke up, and I took my relationship status down from in a relationship with Susie Q to single. And Facebook immediately asked, like, "Hey, man." Do you want us to delete every picture with her tagged in it that you have and get her or and block her? We can do that for you. I'm like, whoa, Facebook. Hey, give, take a sec. Let me let me deal wow. with this in my own time. Well, I feel like that's a that's a it's a it's a good friend move right there. <laughs> that reminds me of the, the great the great scene in uh uh forgetting Sarah Marshall where he's he's doing that and like uh Bill Hader is like his stepbrother, like best friend or both, mm. and like he's like kind of deciding whether or not he's going to like delete all of the photos of him and Sarah. Mm. And then Bill Hader just comes up and just does it for him. <laughs> yeah. And just matches. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and yeah. And, uh, but see, that's the difference. They have a relationship. Facebook and me right. are not friends. They don't get to make those sure. suggestions and choices for me. Isn't yeah. it in their best interest for you? Not to do that <laughs> too? Like, that's what I don't get. Well, but, but then what if I spiral and just kill myself? Then I'm not going to be on Facebook anymore. Isn't no more that ever. good for them? Isn't that good for them too? Like True, that's that a lot of engagement. That's a lot of engagement. Yeah. But if you choose to leave Facebook because you don't want to be reminded of your relationship, that's not good for them. But Facebook <laughs> could at least buy you a drink before they suggest <laughs> getting your ex out of your life. You know. <laughs> yeah. For real. Yeah, one la one last point I wanted to get on before we go straight into recommendations is like what I've been saying through the whole episode is like how this I think this is much stronger for being in the hands of a female director is mm -hmm. and we we've, we've been talking about it throughout this too is like the female characters I think they fall they at least have the general shape of tropes within sci-fi within uh, noir but because it's in the hands of a a woman director and and she you know obviously wrote a lot of it too I think they flesh them out in much more interesting ways to really benefit the story um, mm -hmm. yep and and the first one I, I like at least I thought was most interesting is the character of mace and specifically the scene where they go to I think it's like the New Year's Eve house party and it's showing that she doesn't just exist to like, assist Ray finds and to get him through things like she's got her own life. This is her own community, a community that he's like not really welcomed in. He's kind of allowed in there. Cause it's like, all right, well, mm -hmm. you know, he needs a place to stay right now, but like she's got her own thing going on that he doesn't understand. And it, it just quickly, she quickly illustrates that just with a, a small scene right there. And I thought that like that did volumes, which I don't think a lot of movies would take the time to do. Yeah. yeah. I also like the interesting role reversal or subversion where like she's the one that's sort of pining after like the hottie the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> and then at the at the end she gets to be so badass that like she just like she gets the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I mean it's like I but I believe it. Like I it's a little bit hokey that like, oh, all of a sudden he he likes her back. But it's like I I've accepted that thousands of times when the roles have reversed. Yeah, on, and like every movie of this sort that I've ever watched, mm -hmm. kind of cool seeing those roles reversed. Yeah, I mean, and it might be a little bit indictment of us as three dudes on a podcast that it's taken us this long to get to that. But like, I do think that Macy is like the true beating heart of the film. Like, she's by far the most noble character. She's out here trying to help Ray Fiennes, who's done nothing but put himself in terrible situations throughout the movie. She's got a kid to take care of. He almost fucks up her whole livelihood at the beginning of the movie by like trying to, 
to jack her Japanese client and take him to the, the, um, the, I guess it's a squid club, but yeah, so yeah, I think she's, she's amazing in the movie. And it honestly, the part that strains credulity isn't so much that she gets the guy that it's that, that she, she wants, wants the, guy. the guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you're, yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, but, but who are we to judge? I mean, she gets to decide, you know, who she yep. wants and who yep. she, she, uh, pursues. Well, Captain Bigelow gets to decide who she wants. Yeah. But, but at Not the same James time, Cameron. no, no. Well, no, I, Maybe James Cameron was the one that wrote that whole arc because apparently he was the one that's writing all the sort of touchy feely shit. Yeah. Oh no, I, I meant that Catherine Bigelow doesn't want James Cameron. They broke up. Oh yeah, yeah. No. But yeah, I maybe mean, this is James, James Cameron. Like this James, could be us. <laughs> if only James Cameron had a way fucking cooler tie. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but oh man, Angela Bassett fucking kicks ass in this movie though. Yeah, he does. Like she she. She's like, man, she and she sells some pretty stupid lines, and, and they <laughs> don't sound they, and and they don't sound stupid when she's saying them. Like mm. when she's like, "Listen, Lenny, this tape is a lightning bolt from God." Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh shit, it is. And then I thought about it for another second. Whoa, man, someone wrote that line. Yeah. <laughs> Lame. Yeah. Yeah, That's... but but no, she's amazing. <laughs> that's that's how I how I uh, let everyone know about my letterbox reviews. I send it to Dan in advance, and I say this review is a lightning bolt from God. <laughs> and then the or, city of L.A. riots. And then my my other favorite line that I already quoted at the very tip top of the episode. He's such a tight ass when he farts. Only dogs can hear it. Like oh, I do want to say. Speaking of which, like uh, I forget the actor's name that was playing Philo. He was having a blast. Oh, dude. Time. Dude, uh, Michael, uh, Michael Wayne Wincott. Yeah, dude, yeah. he just pops up in a movie once in a while. That fucking voice carries so much weight. And uh, like yeah. most recently, I think Nope was probably the most recent thing mm -hmm. he was in, yeah, where yeah. it's just like, oh man, I just want to listen to this guy talk. Yep, yep. <laughs> so interesting. Mm -hmm. And uh, playing pretty against type in Nope as well. Yeah, he plays the cinematographer character, right? Right, yep. right. Yeah. <laughs> Underrated movie, Nope. Is it underrated? I feel like people are quite enjoyed it. I feel like people probably, for the most part, put it at number two as far as Jordan Peele's movies. But yeah, yeah, I, you know, it's one of those things where it's like his first at bad is just fucking smashed it. Oh, good. Like, yeah, it's gonna be hard for anyone to, you know, he's gonna have to make a pretty particularly excellent film for anyone to be like, well, it's not as good as Get Out. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Well, speaking of other movies, uh, if you were to pair. Strange Days with uh, another film. What would you recommend here? We'll start with uh, Jackson. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot of different ways you can go. It, it obviously draws from a lot of classic noir tropes, a lot of classic dystopian tropes. But I think um, I'm going to pair it with another movie that also used to be pretty difficult to find until recently. Um, Criterion did a remaster uh, and is now on the Criterion channel and now available to find in other places as well. And that is Olivier Asseas' Demon Lover. Which, oh yeah, I watched yeah, that. yeah. Which I believe I recommended you. Which is similarly about, um, I guess what, I guess putatively, it's about corporate espionage and the world of internet porn. But really, what it's about is is the way that our interaction with screens and our interaction with sexuality virtually changes us 
uh, is a society, which, man, that makes it sound a lot more boring than it is. But um, I think it's a really interesting film, and it's a movie that's kind of hard to get your arms around exactly what it's saying. I think Asayas is a pretty slippery filmmaker. He's made everything from really kind of almost Romare-style domestic dramas like um, Summer Hours, which I think are, is an absolutely incredible movie, but probably doesn't pair great with Strange Days to this this sort of techno-sexual thriller like Demon Lover. So. Mm-hmm. And also just total sidebar, not related to anything. I recommend the shit out of his HBO remake of his own movie, Irma Vet, which might be the most up-the-ass project any filmmaker's ever made, but it is absolutely <laughs> cool. Sometimes I love it when directors are just like, we're, we're just going to gaze at our navels as hard as we can. Come and take a look. And it's fun. Yeah. Jared, what about you? What do you got? Yeah, man, I I love going just really on the nose with these things sometimes. And uh, basically, like if you're talking about like 90s techno noir sci-fi, like, oh, like what's going to happen when technology like really, really, really fucks up our identities as human beings? Like what's going to happen? Kind of like in the Blade Runner mold. Mm. Yeah. I, I was actually, when I was watching the movie, I was tempted to say uh, The Crow, but uh, I think this movie is probably far closer in spirit to Alex Proyas's follow-up to The Crow, Dark City. Mm-hmm. Dark City? I don't uh, know either of those. You don't know The Crow or Dark City? The Not Crow is probably the most most well-known because Brandon Lee got killed on the set. Oh, fuck. But, um, but yeah, Alec Dark- Baldwin. <laughs> yeah, he did. No, literally, literally got got accidentally shot with a, r- a live round. That, or I think he actually just got hit with an actual blank the wrong way. I, yeah, I think and, you're right. I think it's a blank. Wait a minute. And way. isn't the guy? Isn't the guy that in this movie the guy that did it? No. Uh, he is in the crow. I think he's the bad guy in the crow. Michael Wincott. Is he the guy that pulled the trigger? That I don't know the answer to. Anyway, anyway, I'm not recommending the crow. The crow is good, but um, Dark City is kind of deals in a lot of the like a lot of similar vibes. It's more it doesn't have the problem that I was describing earlier in that, you know, the film takes place in the far future, mm-hmm. um, but it definitely is in the same movement where like Hollywood was was putting out these sort of neon noir that would become neo noir like, you know, five, six years later. And Dark City is probably still my favorite example. Like I'd say Strange Days is probably firmly number two. Mm. And Dark City is uh, probably the movie, the pre-Matrix movie that kind of takes like this techno-noir thing. And the, the Matrix was finally the movie that like perfected it. Mm-hmm. But it kind of started in straight with Strange Days, progressed through kind of like Dark City and a couple others and like culminated in the Matrix. Yeah, I'm just looking at uh, stills of it. And it's like, it's got this like cool Hellraiser vibe looking uh, the, yeah, the bad the bad guys definitely look a little bit like Cenobites. Yeah, yeah, I'm into it. That that looks cool. Um, are they similar to Cenobites? Are we going to get a lot of weird kinky dudes going on? No, not not so much. Oh man, never mind. <laughs> yeah, I need to see that. That's been on my to watch list forever. I'm, I'm familiar with it, but I haven't gotten around to it. So I'm yeah. definitely got a very, 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 very kick ass William Hurt performance Hell and yeah. really kick ass uh, Kiefer Sutherland Hell performance yeah. for sure. Oh, that's cool. I love to Keith Sutherland has some like absolute freak performances in his early career. This is like he's like super um ghoulish and like weird in this movie. He oh, plays geez. his he's playing like the like the Igor role. Yeah, that's awesome. cool. yeah he's like the mad the mad scientist little like ghoulish kind of sidekick type of guy. Cool, cool. Um okay, so I got two. The first one quick because it's 
clear uh children men like children men yeah. makes this yeah perfects yep. it like it, it i it's sincerely one of my very very favorite films uh children and men uh but the other one from like an older one it's from 65 have you guys seen uh godar's uh alphaville i have not also on my watch list but i have not seen it so alphaville is kind of an interesting not a counterpoint but a co-point with this one where i would compare it to like if this is like brave new world where the problem is everything is allowed and everything is accessible and there's too much um uh, enjoyment or jouissance or whatever you want to call it. Uh, this is the 1984 of that, where it's like, it's the other mm-hmm. way around where things are cracked down from on top. And you have once again, another neo-noir sci-fi thriller in a future city. And, you know, it's got Kadar, same sense of playfulness with the screen, same sense of like, it's similar to uh, strange days where it's like very sociological uh, filmmaking, very political filmmaking. He's got a lot on his mind. And he's explaining it through this almost like, I don't want to call it a fable, but it, it's very he he's very aware of tropes as he's very good at with a lot of his films, and he plays with them in ways that gets you to think. It's the way that he plays that's uh, important. Awesome, yeah, definitely check that one out as well. I think I think that just about does it for Strange Days talk, Jackson. I really really appreciate you coming back on the pod, yeah. man, and and particularly bringing us a movie that neither Dan or I had ever heard of before. And, and it is truly a banger and like really interesting and just kind of rife with plenty of shit to talk about. So really appreciate you being on again, man. Hell yeah, dude. I really appreciate that you guys had me on. There's nothing I love more than staying up way past my bedtime to talk about <laughs> underrated neo-noir bangers. Um, and you guys also hit me with some great wrecks. So I'll have to check those out as well and catch up on the full filmography of Catherine Bigelow. Cause there's still a few out there that I need to see. Yeah, for, and like this is you know part of the the fun of doing stuff like this is so that friends of yours also care about movies a lot can send you recommend force movies upon you that you probably wouldn't find upon or on your own, and uh, you know check out some hidden gems. One hundred percent. All right. Well, that just about does it for concessions. I'm Jared. I'm Jackson. And I'm Dan. And you know, this is the end of the podcast because we've said absolutely everything. We've talked about every subject. We've dissected every theme. I mean, what are we going to do for the next thousand episodes, Jared? It's all fucking over. (laughs) I love you. Stay seven, seven.